All right, I'm Nick. I'm Dan. And welcome back to another episode of the St. Paul Filmcast. A couple uh, announcements before we get started. Um, I still have my book out. It's not on Indie Planet uh, webpage yet. If you're interested in buying it, um, simply uh, email the show, which I'll have it in the meta. It's ndpaletachuk at gmail. And uh, I will send you a copy um, until Indie Planet gets their stuff together. Um, They're a little backlogged right now, but I should... It should be available in the coming weeks, maybe next month, that it'll be available on Indie Planet for purchasing. But if you're interested and you can't wait, uh, just email me, and um, we use PayPal if you want to use that, or or cash or check of money order. So if you're interested in my comic book, uh, definitely check it out. Mm -hmm. So Dan's got his own copy. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) The Green Way. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk about The Treasure of Sarah Madre. Yes, and... I like to dedicate this to my brother because it's his favorite film. It's his suggestion. And, uh, and it's his suggestion. Yeah. You know, we've, and, you know, we do requests. So right, uh, yeah, we do, I definitely take requests. In fact, if 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 not just uh, family members, but if yep. you're if you're a fan of the show and you have like a movie that you want us to talk about, uh, just send us another email and see if we can put it on our schedule. So. Yeah. We- be more than happy to talk about it. Now, I was going to, during our prep, and I think during the day, I mentioned a movie that John Huston directed in the 70s called The Macintosh Man. With Paul Newman. Paul Newman. It's kind of like yeah. a spy thriller kind of a thing, 1973. Right, and a real yeah. sleeper. Not really well known. Now, the only chuckle I got out of it, yeah, it's kind of, it kind of went away. I did, I barely knew about this movie. I'm kind of like I want to order it now. Yeah. But the only the chuckle I got of it is uh, there are well, one third of the movie is filmed in the island of Malta. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which everybody knows John Hewson's first movie he ever directed was the uh, Maltese Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a little. Oh, there, he actually had a. He had. He had to go. He had to go. Yeah. Right. He had to go make a movie in the, um, uh, in the island Malta. There is a documentary on Netflix now called uh, catering. Um, well, centered on Orson Welles, but predominantly can focus a little bit on John Hewson as well as they were. Oh partners together right. um if you can find it it was um they will re they will, will remember me when i'm dead it was orson welles line in the 70s yeah uh, that's the documentary of orson welles making the movie and there's another one called um the other side of the wind which was what the movie was going to be titled oh interesting and it was kind of i think orson welles using it was kind of he says it wasn't uh autobiographical it totally was yes um he's basically Pretty much going to do in the early 70s, what we see now is like a mockumentary film about himself. And he was going to use John Huston as somebody playing him, playing his life that is it's spiraling out of control. Talk about a wonderful conceit. Yeah. I mean, the ego on this guy. Right. I'm going to do a documentary on moi. Yes. Yeah. And I'll, I think I have the caliper and the stature to have John yeah. Huston kind of play this. His, I think there's. The director is supposed to be named as Jack Hannaford or something okay. like that. But John Huston was going to be in the movie. And you can see, what you watch these documentaries on, on Netflix, them interacting, and he's going to star in, I think this is actually before Chinatown. Okay. John Huston oh, was. that's right. So yeah. it'd be a little bit, uh, it'd be really early 70s yeah. then. And it's Scorch Peter Badanovich. It really did it because really? uh, Orson Welles is going to hire Rich Little to play the persona of Peter Badanovich. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have such a field day with that, right? And and Peter, you know, loved Orson Welles, and we'll talk about more about yeah. that when we get to uh, 
third man, but yeah. um, catering to Treasure of Sarah Madre. So uh, what yeah. do we you want to start out with? Well, it was made in 1948, yes, it uh, was. and it's an ad- um, adaptation of B. Travis's 1927 novel of the same name. Uh, yeah. And um, What was the author's name again? Uh, B. Travins. Um, this is kind of a weird thing. Nobody really knows about who this person is. Right. They know, they know, John Hewson claims he never met the person either. There's no. like this animosity of who this person really yeah, is. You you really don't know. I mean, because yeah. it is it's kind of a footnote. And John Houston was the one who wrote the script. Right. Wrote yep. the script and directed beautifully. Yeah. And uh, what happened was, um, well, you know, the Warners... Uh, uh, they, the brothers, they they were notorious for not reading scripts or, you know, just giving the green light. Jack, yeah, especially, yeah. yeah. And so it's like, yeah, whatever. He thought it was a B movie. And before he knew it, John Houston's moving everything down to Mexico, which in 48 was unheard of. You're making yeah. a film, you're going to stay in the studio. And here he's going down to Mexico. Yep. It's like, hey, where's Houston? Oh, he's in... Uh, uh, he's in uh, Mexico with his old man. What? Did I agree to that? You know? And <laughs> so they're in the screenings and they're, you know, they're watching the scenes where, you know, Bogart yep. and Holt are, you know, drinking water. And it's like, when the hell are they going to find the gold? I know what they're after. They're after my gold. <laughs> and, I guess he jacks all about taking yeah. my money. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine how that went. But the, the, the mystique of this is nobody really knows where the the original material right. derived from. And, and John was kind of very guarded about it. That's, uh, that's true. I never met the man. I was handed the script and all this stuff. Or, yeah. <laughs> you do yeah. a really good Houston. Houston, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I just don't have a perpetual cigar all the time mm-hmm. going. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's true. I never knew that. That's a yeah. uh, hidden talent. And, of course, a beautiful cameo by uh, director John Houston at the beginning of the film. Where... See, I don't know if it's intentional. It's just cheap. Oh, make... I liked it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Sometimes when directors put themselves in oh, it. Oh, it's like can't, it's, can't hire anybody for can't that. Can't hire movie. somebody or maybe it's my signature or maybe because it's my personal film, I want to be in it. Yeah. Kind of like that. That I think it I think it was a personal conceit. I think, you know, he was going to make a little signature that this is my film. Yeah. And uh, I would like to think so anyways. Because here's Bogart running, you know, walking around town. Yeah, in the and, beginning of the movie, he's soliciting uh, people for money. Right, and he's he's down on his luck, right. and obviously the narration starts with him. Yep. And uh, yep. Uh, the uh, he meets this fellow American. It's like, hey, yeah. can you, hey, buddy, who looks you? well off? He's well off. He's dressed in white. Yep. Yes, yeah, which I think when it's a black and white you get to he pops out right that's true and yeah. so he gets a peso from him and, <laughs> and then <laughs> and, again yeah and, and then again, again and bogart's character dobbs is like hey i've got a i've got a wild one here in fact uh houston's character questions him on that oh, you hit me three times right you know and kind of you know he's getting disgusted with this fella now i'm sorry i didn't see you before now i i don't know if it's intentional uh, this a line in the movie or the little more of an inside joke because john houston used humphrey bogart in the maltese falcon right um which catapulted his career it, so it, really did. It, it obviously he was in films and he did leading roles but this maltese falcon okay i can mark this one okay Okay, so he used him at Maltese Falcon, which catapulted his career. Right. And 
he, I think Humphrey Bogart uh, around after World War II was kind of stagnated about his choices of movies, and John Huston presented with, well, how would you like to play a bad guy? And so oh. it catapulted his career, too. He was so elated, Humphrey Bogart so elated, that it's uh, rumored, and a lot of his friends said he was at the nightclub down in L.A. I heard this story, I'm yeah. On his hand. I'm going to play the meanest son of a bitch you ever know. <laughs> you saw a critic, yeah. and yeah. the critic said, hey, buddy, you, yeah. you know, just get a hold, just get a load of the next film that I make. You know, he's yeah. going to be yeah, the biggest son of a bitch you've ever seen. So I don't know if it's a little inside joke of John Huston's character as Humphrey Gopart continues soliciting for <laughs> money. Right. As all the kind of, I think Humphrey Bogart was doing a real like, hey, you got any more movies I can do? Yeah. And John Huston said, here, do this. <laughs> now you're on your own. And <laughs> yeah, and make stop. a living and stop bothering me. And be- <laughs> And be a tribute, you know, be a contribution to society. I think it's a little bit of inside joke from John Huston, Humphrey mm-hmm. Bogart, of Humphrey always <laughs> soliciting, hey, you got another movie I can do. And Houston's, like, hey, <laughs> make, be a star right. in your own, you know. Oh. Which I, I, I think is a little more that. of an inside joke inside the movie. Right. Yeah. I, I do too. And uh, uh, um, it was interesting because he, uh, he also, there was a little bit of nepotism here because he was able to get his father, right, Walter, Walter Houston, who didn't want to be in the picture because he was used to being a leading man and uh he 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 never was used to playing second fiddle and you know or just a sideline Uh, but he's such he's so pivotal to this role this character uh what's his name uh well uh howard yes howard the fastest talking man i ever saw in film Right. We talked about in prep. He's the energy of the movie, which he is, really, he is he's the oldest. He's a vitamin with legs, and it's the <laughs> it's the other it's the younger fellas, Tim Holt's character, and, who had the beaten down trog. Yep, and yeah. and Bogart, who are just they're they're just trudging along. They just can't right. keep up with the life. Is man. just giving a big punch in the nose that they ever recovered from. Oh, yeah. because we don't know what uh, Bogart's character, Fred C. Dobbs. Mm-hmm what his life was prior to this. Obviously, he can't get a job. He can't get a job. He... Can't really navigate life at all. You get the feeling he's cynical. He's definitely cynical. Yeah. But he seems like... He seems like a nice person. As soon as he meets Holt... Uh, in fact, when um, uh, the old man's telling him, hey, gold will change you. Right. You know? You yeah. Got, uh, Bogart's like... You know, what the heck you talking about? You know, yeah. it's uh, money is just something to use. A mere fascination. In fact, he uses the line, um, we'll be lighting dollar bills, you know, $100 right. bills with cigars. You know, it's just mere fascination. I'm not going to be taken in by that. Now, there's a central thing that everybody critiques this movie has that the theme is actually just a wholesome of greed, how greed yes. and mining corrupts you. And I have a different take of what a possibly the theme could be also, I just want to give it a little bit heads oh, up, yeah. but I don't want to concentrate. I have a little bit at the end or what I regard as the theme and what I wrote my essay Excellent. when I did uh, okay. my different take of the movie. So, and I, I think the unique, unique thing about the movie is Humphrey Bogart's name, Fred C. Dobbs. Yeah. He gives a little more class to himself than I think he has. Right. Yes. It's almost if you always use your middle name, it's almost like you have some respectability you, that he he wants to he thinks he demands it. Yeah. You, yeah. It's almost like you're a landowner or esquire. Esquire. Yeah. yeah. And it's a slow evolution of his character that we 
love to witness, right? Right. We're appalled by it, but we love to go with him, you know, as he's talking to himself when he's sat up his heart. And he has a certain yeah. sense of integrity. No one's going to do this to me. Yeah. He's, he's very... He's, he's got his powerful. shields up the whole time, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. And um, I... Uh, I I agree with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a spiral to madness that we enjoy witnessing. It's true, and I yeah. think that it was one of the clinchers that got Bogart his job in Key Mutiny because no one can play yeah. um, a person sinking slowly into madness yeah. like Bogart can, and especially paranoia. He's he's a master at it, and yeah. when you first see him becoming unraveled with. Uh, because uh, he's very relaxed in the beginning. Yeah. Oh, very he relaxed. Is. Yeah. yeah, and he's very casual, and he's, uh, you know, I've been hit so many times, it doesn't even phase me anymore. And so yeah. he's really confused at why is this old man saying, I'm going to be changed. I'm, you know, I'm like the rocks in the river. <laughs> Nothing's going to move me. And he, I don't think he even notices the change. He's no. totally oblivious to it. Uh, in fact, when his buddy tells him, hey, you know, you want to measure out the gold in that? Right, the beginning when they started yep. getting productive. Which was probably the worst thing that they could have done. Yeah. You know, anting up the gold to each in. And I think it was an innocent request, and the old man was fine with it. Uh, okay, well, if you want to do it that way. It's logical because I think in the beginning of the movie, remember that um, Holt, a uh, curtain, curtain? Yeah. Curtin and Dobbs get hired for a job and they get skimped out on it. That's right. And so and they, they're just being a little wary of that. A little bit wary. And that's a very good footnote in the movie. Then actually they get hired at a bar. Hey, you want to do some work for me? Now is the end. Now, right now. Plus yeah. the truck's leaving, which kind of, when you do, and they get, they get scammed and then they beat the crap out of the guy at the bar. <laughs> that's but, true. But that's such a, a logical explanation of his demeanor, right? Right. And yeah. also you get a chance to see how he reacts to any stranger that comes along. I mean, of course, there are yeah. certain points where it's necessary. Um, like the, uh, well, the fellow American, whom they're wary of, that meet up with them before the ban- the bandits do. Um, you know, uh, they're all very standoffish, you know, because they have gold and they want to make sure that they hold on to their gold. Yeah. Uh, and when he dies defending them from the bandits... Uh, you can see the humanity in, in Holt's character. You can see humanity in the old man. You don't see it in Bogart. And that's really telling. Yeah. Um, because it's like, wow. You know, <laughs> he he's... I, I believe that the switch happened then and there. That yeah. he he was bitten by that, that poison. That, that gold. That gold, uh, gold sickness, as they say in The Hobbit. So I'll just give you a little bit of a side story about Humphrey Bogart. He actually right. grew up very posh. But the English word is kind of posh. Did he his, really? He lived in a very uh, nice part of Manhattan. His dad was a doctor. His mom was an illustrator. Okay. And she would actually illustrate his face for advertisements when he was a baby. He went to private schools. He wasn't really behave. His behavior kind of kicked him out of a couple of schools. He was kind of well, he was a little, tro- yeah. little troublemaker. A little troublemaker, okay. which Betty Davis puts in her autobiography how they were when they got hired in the movie studios, him and her were getting in trouble all the time get written up almost daily really? but not coming back after lunch all the time but not remember lines and she goes oh. that was just she goes do they not understand actors we're just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So the, apparently during the tie day of um, Warner Brothers, Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart were the biggest troublemakers and pranksters on each other. <laughs> that is great. Um, Humphrey's uh, son, Stephen, said that Humphrey loved to, uh, during his own parties, like to antagonize people, get them riled up. Really? Just, just to get a reaction. Just now. kind of, you know, yeah. Pull- Push their buttons. You know, probably he's kind of a person in a room full of Democrats. He was a Republican. Okay. In the room full of Republicans, he was <laughs> the, the Democrat. Democrat. Yeah, when you, everybody... Yeah. You always like to be the devil's advocate. Just yes. To, just to stagger up the And that was on. entertaining for him. I think he liked it. He, um, his pleasure, his hobby was uh, a yacht. He liked He sailing. liked to go from L.A. to uh, Hawaii and yeah. do the, do the uh, yeah. um, well, the yachting. Yeah. Uh, and he would do that every year. And there was a point where... Uh, when they were going through the rushes of Treasure Sea Sierra Madre, yep. he was going after Houston, saying, "Well, we're going to be done here. We're going to be done for this. I got to get to my yacht, my boat, know, I gotta my be- boat, my boat." And finally, he got, yeah, just like, like yeah. you know, Africa Queen. Finally, Houston got so peeled with him that he yeah. grabbed onto his nose, twisted as how as hard as he could, and. Bogart didn't bother him for the rest of the <laughs> rest of the shooting of the movie. <laughs> um, a couple other things is he was losing his hair during the filming of Sierra Madre, and he used a wig, and a lot of times when the hat, yep, yeah, he was really you can see it in the movie Sabrina, okay. really bad. But it was really from about after I would say about a, after the war. In fact, you can see him when he do his USO campaigns during World War II. They did yeah. a really great job with yeah. Madre. I yeah. would have noticed. Yeah, especially the barber. All yeah. he does is just <laughs> That's right. I won't move it right, right. So. Um, he was very worried that he didn't think his fans would accept that he was losing his hair. Yeah, well, inside his career, it could be especially during that day and age. Yeah. Um, his upper teeth were capped, and it was a very bad job. So it um, it got in the way. So you wanted to see if you see movies when he hikes up his upper lip. He goes, "It's a reaction to his capped teeth." Oh, when he it's does that, the half smile. Yeah, he does the little. When anybody does a Bogart impersonation, you do that. Hike up your upper lip. Hike up your upper lip. Right. And, yeah. And he also had a very prominent scar. I can't remember the side of his face. So he, he had this all these things going against him that you would think a movie star. Right. <laughs> he, would, he, right. Yeah. And he was always below average height. Yeah. He wasn't, um, he wouldn't mind wearing stilted shoes for his leading ladies to match their level. So, he, But he did have this rugged. I guess you'd call it rugged good looks and, and a great personality. Right. Of uh, just a, a, a very um, really glowing a, personality. Right. And it's his real name. Right. That is not a stage name. That is his real authentic name. Really? Yes. <laughs> now, John Houston has a little background. He was a, just out, did everything. When he, so I think he was done with school. I don't think he finished school, but he was like a writer, a oh. rancher. Uh, he did all these professions. He was a tradesman. He was. Um, script writer, he just kind of fell into directing. He didn't really pursue directing until he got into the Hollywood machine and said, eventually I want to make a movie. Um, He's not dumb. He's like, well, I'll take one of the stories that you guys have failed on repeatedly, (laughs) which is the multi-falcon, and I'll make it a big hit, which kind of catapulted his career. It's interesting because I was thinking about that. Watching The Treasure of Sierra Madre, if it was put in the hands of uh, another director, it would have been successful. It's a good story. But Houston uses elements and themes that are, I mean, that I haven't seen since the silent era. I mean, there's a beautiful scene where, uh, especially where Bogart is slowly going from evil. He's slipping into evil, actually into madness, because he's thinking about, he just, in his mind, murdered 
his friend. Yeah. He's gone off the deep end. And there's a scene there where he's trying to get to sleep and he's looking at the fire. And Houston creates the fire and he makes the fire bigger and bigger and bigger. And then this is very creative. All of a sudden, you know, through the licks of the flames, you just yeah. see Bogart's eye. And it's very disturbing. Yeah. It's just, yay. And yeah. there's, a, it's a beautiful uh, representation of hell. And then the next thing we see is the old man. He's he's in paradise. He why? Because he did a good deed. Yeah. You know, he walked away from the gold. He did a good deed. The the two thing the things that the two younger guys laughed at him about. And who's the happiest at the end of the film? It's the yeah. old man. He's 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 being you know given tequila by these beautiful maidens. He's right. We we understand of yeah. of Howard the character in the movie would probably be happy working, yeah. not being successful or being successful. Right. He's just happy existing. He's also a conscientious character. He, he knows what, what the trappings of what you could do. And what, what can happen. happen. Yeah. And um, it's water off a duck's back at the end of the film. Yeah. You know, when they realize the, that everything is turned to dust. And it's interesting how they were able to get that wind going. They uh, got help from the Mexican Air Force and they actually had these huge planes. God, that's John Houston would do that. Yeah, and these propellers <laughs> that actually pushed yeah. all of the wind to get the gold, you know, you know, to blow like that. Yeah. Um, and it's just a, just a great scene because you think, well, they could do one of two things. They can go back to the mountain, you know, get right. some more. <laughs> but, you know, in this day and age, it probably would do that. Revenge of the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Right, make a sequel because it made success. Yeah. Um, I want to actually presenting of the film, how the film was shot. Um, it's okay. very intimate. Yes, it's it very is. tight and almost like Maltese Falcon tight. It's uh, even very close, a lot of close ups, a lot yeah. of close ups, very up, waist up. And even though you're doing a whole scale of town, you may be focusing on maybe two or three people, very close in the very intimate right. setting, especially with Dobbs. Uh, you almost get a certain sense of claustrophobia, yeah, and uh, to work with this paranoia. Because you don't, there's really no large scope. Even though they're, mi even in the scenes where they're mining in the mountain, right. you don't get the capture of how big this mountain is or where that you get the intimacy of just them working in close proximity. True. Yeah. yeah. And them working together, living together, and and trying to get along together. And, right. Yes. And the, the slow madness that happens with it. Um, another actor that I think deserves to be mentioned um although he plays uh just a, a very small part is uh um alfonso bedoya yes. who has probably the most famous line in this film yeah. badges <laughs> we are federales uh, badges we don't need no stinking badges I now uh, as a kid i it's been Used in Blazing Saddles, oh, in your gosh, all the Looney yeah. Tunes move, the Looney Tunes and all that stuff. The yep, whole yeah, and uh, you wonder as a kid, well, where did this come from? Where did it derive from? Yep. Right, we had no idea. My dad, I actually mentioned this to my dad. Where did this come from? And he <laughs> yeah. goes, it comes from a movie called Treasure Sierra Madre. And I was like, mm -hmm. you just made that up. <laughs> where did it really come from? Is that made up? That sounds made up. <laughs> right, as a kid, you're like, no. And then, uh, and it's another footnote I was going to mention as we I get to my point of view of the theme is. My dad wanted to show this to me as a kid. I didn't have the patience for it. Uh, most older films, which with kids, it, yeah. it is it's a difficult. Well, run. It, I think about yeah. twelve years old when I watched Maltese Falcon. I had the patience for that because I liked the intensity. It was yeah. murder mystery, and then you encapsulate this. I think it was hard for a kid to probably sustain right patience for. 
Um, I don't know this day and age of, of the millennials and people who are in their 20s have the sustainability to sit and watch oh, and this movie. It's a tragedy, too, because it is the story tells itself almost in a Steinbeckian sort of way, you know. Um, Right, I would. God, I would sign Darren Steinbeck yeah, as kind of like this kind because of... it's it's about the common man, and yeah. it is just trying to eke out a living, and what, just trying to survive what it can do to the human soul and the human psyche, and it's it's very much about the human condition and how people treat other people and what you have to go through, right. and um, which is a very John Steinbeck sort of thing. Yeah. And um, that's what it, the first thing that struck me when I saw it the first time. It's a slow burn because it takes its time in telling the story. Would millennials have the time and patience for it? I would like to think so, but maybe not. Right. You know, maybe they would have to speed up the story, yeah. which I think you would you would lose a lot of nuance too, which is just terrible. Now you're making me depressed. <laughs> um, the cinematographer is Ted um, Accord. Yes. If you know movies, if you want to be really uh, proficient in your understanding of movies, you have to understand uh, the cinematographer said Ted McCord. He ran a school. He actually learned on the spot of what cinematography was. He didn't. Re there was really rough school for cinematography. He learned lightings and cans and how to frame stuff. Just being on sets and using that and okay. learning as you go. So this was yeah. a cre This was a talent and an aesthetic that was being created at the time right and using actually natural light in this movie makes it hard to make it look like a dark gritty film yeah when he uses actually cans in the background and so you see everything is kind of lit back to front that's true which is gives it even though you're shooting at high noon in the desert gives a <laughs> sense of really gritty dark to it yeah it's yeah. uh it, it's considered a neo-western yeah uh and it uh and I don't think that um, understanding was there, just shooting out in the open, because they yeah. didn't really use it that much. They were always studio shots yep. for a film. And uh, Houston, I think, was working as he went along with that. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna. We were talking about the um, the ideas of greed with the film. Yeah. Uh, I think that it it uh, the film has a kindred spirit with another film that was made earlier in 1925. That was uh, Eric von Stroheim's Greed, and um, Eric was uh, another accomplished director, yep, and I think uh, he was in Sunset Boulevard. Yes, he was. <laughs> yes, yes uh, he played Max, and <laughs> yeah. uh, to uh, um, uh, his glorious Dynam. Uh, I can't remember who played. Uh... Sunset Bowl. Oh, uh, yeah, the Nora Desmond. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, Norma. <laughs> yes. But Eric is a very well on himself. Oh, yeah. Yes. But Greed is, yeah. The, it's kind of a, a holy grail of Hollywood because the original film went for like six hours. And they, MGM ripped it apart to like an hour and a half. And they said, you know, he always said, they destroyed my masterpiece. And it's a great film. Uh, and Zazu Pitts was in it, and right. they, they, they restored it to a point. But there it also talks about a person who is sweet and nice, and then he goes through this change, this uh, evil change, all because of greed. Yeah. And uh, so it, it shares a lot of that and, um, and tragedy at the end. Right, because it's, it's not right. When, even when uh, Howard says, you know, we got enough. 
Yeah. <laughs> and even yeah. Bogan, well, what do you mean? We haven't got everything that this mountain wants to deliver. Right. Well, you're not thinking smart about this. So how much, you, what are you going to sack, like 500 on a mule? And, you know. Right. It, yeah, exactly. You're not being realistic. Yeah. Yeah, you just, you're being bitten by uh, your motivation of wanting more and more and more. It's not realistic. It's yeah. it's an, actually, it's madness. Um, I was going to also mention about Ted, uh, Ted McCord. Um, yes. If you want to look him up, it's, there's a magician, a musician called Ted McCord, but if you, the cinematographer Ted C. McCord, one of his understudies was Conrad Hall. Conrad oh. Hall was an, uh, well, again, accomplished cinematographer. Um, he's very famous for, uh, shooting the film Cool Hand Luke oh. <laughs> and know how to project heat. Right? right, and working as an understudy with Ted, and t- uh, Conrad Hall. If you want to know if you love film history, it was the first one to allow a flare in the film. And really? I think it was it, it's in used in Quinn Luke. First time we ever see the, the the prisms of sun beating on a film because before that, before Quinn Luke, people were like, oh, you got the flare that's going to oh, ruin the film, right? Right. We gotta not recognize that we're using a film. But in Kuwait and Lou Conrad was so able to convince actually convin- on purpose convince the directors like no it's hot out I think we ha- we could use it and get away with it and now it's natural everybody doesn't really oh, yeah. care about it but but, but before that for Kuwait uh, and Luke using a flare in the film was a big no no it was a mistake right oh, now yeah. now it's this okay now, you, now it's an artistic license also, yes right <laughs> yes and it all comes from Ted McCord's schooling of cinematography wow. That's, you know, that's, using that's, you got to and I that's one of the writing advices I had was put the weather in your story right because that's part of the story yeah it's, uh, um, or if you need to create the weather like the airplanes in right. Treasure Sierra Madre right like uh, use I mean usually if a good successful movie has some kind of increment of the weather involved in right it, whether it's it's the man against nature conflict that you want to center on, but it's a subplot as well too. Right. And the weather into this is a subplot. It is. It's very important because it's what uh, the old man's character says. Hey, we took from this mountain. We got to patch her up again. Yeah. And that's that's all there is to it. You don't really think of too much ecological um, messages, especially in the forties. Um, right. Yeah. And here he's saying, no, we we exploited this mountain, you know, and we have to give back. She gave back to us. We're going to fix her up again. And right. Yeah. Uh, that's it's uh, I, I found that very interesting. He was a very he was a very well-rounded character and so essential to the film. Um, that's true. Uh, Walter Houston, um, uh, the Howard story, um, that is his authentic gold mining discovery dance i think Walter. really yes right which is a very a very <laughs> famous scene i think and everybody did collage our famous scenes of the yeah. movie it one of them is capturing uh uh walter houston's dancing when he's elated to discover gold and they have oh. no idea what you're doing yeah <laughs> he my my hand to god the, uh, i actually had to see the film a second time because he does talk so fast in you know, I didn't catch that. I have to. What did he say again? And, right, because um, he uses a lot of metaphors, euphemisms. Oh, yeah. You know, you by guys. By thunder, by my, thunder was a big one. By thunder, by thunder, by thunder rumbles. Thunder was really involved in his uh, vernacular. <laughs> and he did win an Academy Award for this movie. 
well deserved. Like well, I'm not. I'm not surprised at all. I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little more justification that Walter uh, Houston didn't get to play the leading role, yeah. but he got the supporting role, and then he got an Oscar for yes, it. He initially didn't want to. He didn't want to do it, and John Houston said, "I guess that he." Um, he spent some time, I guess, in the military down in Mexico. His father did. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's like, you know the groundwork. You know, if they, I, And even Houston said, I think it's some of the most brilliant work you've ever done in this film. You know, this film here, your character. It's, it's the most brilliant work you've now, ever done. Now, out of the Trinity, um, Tim Holt, who played Curtin. Yes. Um, went on to do a lot of other Western films. This is much as it, I don't know if this would be regarded as a Western film. Yeah, they said you know, neo Western. Yeah, you know, I've read about. I don't it. think it's as concerted no. in the genre. But uh, Tim Holt went on to make star in a right, bunch yes. of other movies. And later in life, he actually hosted a TV show in Oklahoma City. Did he was really? a host, and he actually introduced all the movies he was in. Um, that is very later in life. So um, he didn't. He kind of bucked his nose at Hollywood. He didn't like the operating system. He didn't like the, but um, kind of the, the corporate wheel. Right. And he ran it when he got enough money, he ran his own ranch and okay. to entertain himself. He had to host this TV show that was in Oklahoma city where he presented some of the f- most famous films like state coach. He was in oh, Treasure fantastic. Yeah, Red so, river maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, and later on in the life, that's what he was. Everybody probably in Oklahoma would recognize that's where he's from. He, when he was in Westerns, he always wore gloves because he's like, that's what cowboys do. Sure. Perpetually. He goes, I, he, I'm on the ranch. You always wearing gloves because you know what job you're going to do. And he goes, I, mean, I frown on people, even John Wade, who don't wear gloves. You, <laughs> if you're a cowboy, you always have them on because you don't know what job you're going to entail. That's so, a good point. I even mean, when he's yeah. gathering ropes, right? You're, uh, yeah, you need gloves, right? He, he, in fact, I think when he hosted a show, he's always wore his gloves too, just demonstrate that cowboys are always wearing these. Things. <laughs> And, he, and he's a, his character, I think, um, does the line, the worst isn't, with the line from the movie, I think he says, the worst isn't all that bad when it happens. Right. That's which is a, a great line. Right. It's because it, I think it's a, a um, another one of the themes is anxiety. Yeah. It's the worrying that yeah. kills you. The devastating of, oh, I did all this work and now yeah. you're going to take it from me. And what happened, yeah. yeah, what happened to Dobbs? He's up on that, you know, his mind is spinning. It's like. He's and he's trying to solve every problem. It's like, well, if I kill him, I'll you know that'll take mm-hmm. care of it. Well, yeah. now they're dead. I gotta find a way to hide the bodies. You know, oh, did I really kill him? I don't know if I really killed him. Oh, the cats got him. He's he's going everywhere. He's right. he's just spinning left and right. You almost scream, want to scream at the movie. Look, <laughs> yeah. every paranoia you've had has proven that it's not right because <laughs> right. every every assumption he had has always been it's, incorrect it's, yeah that's true which a logical person's like all right everything i've assumed is wrong maybe i am <laughs> yeah. but no he would just his character's like no eventually i'm going to be right and yeah. i'm going to be ready for it and and sooner or later yeah. and when tragedy happens and he runs into uh it's gold it's gold hat gold yeah. hat yeah and he said i i know you <laughs> i know you uh houston actually wanted um a gorier ending he actually wanted uh gold i can understand it because yep. there is the the dakota the third act doesn't really yep. Give it a punch. Yeah, it's true. Uh, unfortunately, the code at the time, the censors in '48, um, just had Gold Hat, you know, machete, you know, machete him down, and he does it again, you know, and you do you see another scene of it. 
what was supposed to happen is you're supposed to see the decapitation. The head rolls down and yeah. falls into the river. Now, the thing is, what you do see is you do see uh, Gold Hat's uh, bandit friends react yeah. to, to the head falling. And then it goes after uh, Gold Hat Machete's Dobbs. You do see the rippling a little bit in the river. So there yeah. is... Houston was able to create a little bit of it, uh, but he really wanted the head to fly off. Uh, so did Bogart, you know, for that matter, you know? <laughs> well, What's the big pre- deal about a guy losing his hat? <laughs> our previous episode, when we went ahead of Vincent, we talked about the Omen and uh, Dave uh, Wagner's film. Oh, that's right. He right, yeah. gets his head chopped off, and he, <laughs> yeah. he, he, was, he didn't want to be on a set to film, just to witness his own. He, <laughs> he had a little queasiness. I don't know if um, Bogart probably... Yeah, well, I want to see it. Let yeah, us, he did. He probably, <laughs> let me see my head roll. He was very, he was very yeah. excited about it. Yeah, and didn't understand why. Um, but I don't know if it would, probably would cheapen a little bit the film. I've just seen a, a rolling head, probably a little more. Uh, it, I, yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think it would have, it would have been revolutionary because no, forty eight. Yeah. Uh, it, but the thing is, unfortunately. Treasure Sierra Madre probably would have been remembered for that. You know, it was the yeah. first time we ever saw a beheading. Um, and I think it would have taken, a, maybe taken away, the gratuitousness of it might have taken away from the importance of the story. Um, you know, but who knows? I mean, we really can't go back in time and figure it out. But uh, Another uh, little spot, I didn't. I don't know if you knew it, I mentioned it in our prepping, that the little boy, the lottery boy, yes. is Robert Blake. You know, I, I was curious about that. I said to myself, <laughs> that little kid looks a lot like Robert Blake. I did. Right. Yeah. Senor, you won! I know. Yeah. And it's like, but then I was thinking, I wasn't too sure when it was made at the time, and I was like, oh, it can't be. Um, is it, you know, and I was tossing it around in my head. Well, it's good to know. I've got closure. It is Robert Blake. All right. Did you ever watch Beretta? Yes, with the cockatoo and yeah. yeah. He's talking, you're right. Yeah. Maybe if he had a bird on his shoulder, you would say, that's Robert Blake. (laughs) That's Robert Blake. Right, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, if he had like a little bottle of aspirin, you know, like in uh, cold blood. (laughs) Right, yes. (laughs) I noticed that. Yeah. Um, This movie is one of the rare movies to subtract of kind of any kind of a female role role in it. Obviously, there's women in there. Yeah. But there's any, no real female it's, in there it's true it's it's very much a male um oriented story and it's also a male oriented uh movie and yeah the only female that, uh, that's in there is the the lady i might use that term loosely that yeah, right that um Scheiser boss that they were working with they meet up with him and say, boys, fellas, I've been trying to find you everywhere, you know? Uh, and then the other girl that Bogart, after he gets his money from handhandling, yep. instead of going and getting food or everything, go gets uh, dolled up. Doll, right? yeah. He which, gets a, which, you know. Is, and then he follows a lady that's, oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, <laughs> that's true. He does. Oh, which is very interesting to see how, what does he do with the money? Well, he doesn't do anything really practical with it. You know, right. he, no, everybody's when they talk about what you're going to do with your money and they have logical solutions. He says, I'm going to order the most expensive thing and, the, and then I'm going to send it back. Yeah. And yeah, it's just frivolousness. It's, yeah. And it's uh, there's also a mean spiritedness about it. You right. Know? He, I, I'm I'm thumbing my nose to all the swells that are out there. You know, it's revenge, um, which right. is very telling. What even the, we expect in the future with him, even the kids that the 
Robert Blake, the little boy, hounding him for oh. money, and he has uh, just profound disdain for him. Yeah, it's not I, like okay, kid, go away. No, he, yeah. he's I'll thump you. I'll, right, I'll, I'm, you know, he, he threatens the kid. Yeah, yeah. So there's, it's not just of the profession that it's already has this heightened there, you can disdain. See the, yeah, you can see the roots that are there, but the the story moves with him. So. Whether we like it or not, we're going along with the story with Dobbs. Yeah. And so it's like, okay. And usually stories, um, the Warners didn't like the ending of the story. They, you know, um, the old typical bourgeois, where's the happy ending? There's no happy ending. Oh, yeah, I can see. um, There shouldn't be. And there shouldn't be. No. And in fact, well, in a sense, there is. Um, Well, for the surviving members, there are. Right, because Curtin and Howard come, you know, they're yeah, like, what's, they, all right, so what the heck? We, yeah, que sera, sera. You know, he, right. uh, the old man says, I, I, my, my life is set. I, I'm, they're going to treat me like a god where I, <laughs> because of one good deed. And what did yeah. I do? I did a good deed. Yeah, so um, what he was like, somebody's sick, yeah, right? Somebody was sick. And he trusted the other guys, even trusted Dobbs, hey, watch my stuff. Right. And and we saw how well that went, and then we saw what happened to Dobbs. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it, it's it's a ta- it's a moral tale, um, and I do believe in the essence of that. It has a good ending, but it wasn't enough for the Warners. Hey, it no, made them no. money and it made a profit. Now I want to get um, Bogey did two movies with the title Dark in it. First one he did was 1939 Dark Victory with Betty Davis. Oh yes. And then he did one a um, little bit after this movie called Dark Passage with Lauren Bacall. Okay. This is when he the he breaks out of prison and he gets plastic surgery and the and it gets your first it's the camera is the character the first yep. beginning of the movie Dark Passage and then when he gets his bandages wrapped then it's Bogart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I oh. get those two movies mixed up because I, I it's that. Dark yeah. Passage and Dark Victory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another bogey movie that I think you would actually like uh, in a lonely place. Okay. It's another one. Uh, it's a very film noir, In a Lonely Place. In a Lonely Place. And I can't remember the proper pronunciation of this. It's Sakaro. Sakaro. Yes. Now that I've water. heard of. Yes. That is a very well accomplished bogey <laughs> movie. Um, his last one was in The Boxer Manager. Oh, um, The Heart of They Fall. Heart of They Fall, something yes. like that. What was his last movie? He was actually suffering from uh, throat cancer at the time. Okay. And he was, he was very sick. And, yeah. you know... The director wasn't sure if, you know, should I have him here? Should I have? And um, Bogart was like, no, I'm, you know, he he was all or nothing. The show must go on. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I get Harder They Fall and Requiem for a Heavyweight mixed up. You know, yeah. Because, but it's a great film. It is just, it's a super, super film. Um, it's been a long while since I've seen it. And Bo, that's his last his last performance. Um, he got he, uh, Bogey got recognized as playing John Dillinger in yeah. Petrified Force on stage. That's that's right. And people were thought that he looked very much like Dillinger. He kind of did a and little he bit. He did, yeah. A little bit he, like Dillinger. Uh, he he really did. Now that you mentioned it. He yeah, was. and then when they did Petrified Force on stage, everybody would just gasp. Oh my God, that is, really looks like Dillinger. <laughs> like, yeah, and that's how he got actually catapulted before movies was recognized. Was, was in but, was in that that play, the Petrified the, Forest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which. When it was made into a movie, I know that Leslie Howard was in it. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't want to. Do I the main into a movie? They didn't use Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, which is which is crazy. Right. Um, the 
the other thing too about Bogart is he was a good actor, but also he liked to be behind the camera every once in a while. And the scenes really? where John Huston was cameoing, um, actually Bogart did direct at the beginning of the film. Really? Yes. Yeah. See, I, I, you know, John Huston, I think, can be somebody that's very adaptable, very yeah. fluid. Not like John Ford was very, this oh, is the way it wait. is. This is where you stand. This yeah. is how you're going to say your very lines. Kubrickian, and, yeah. yeah. Where I think Houston's very more fluid and a little more understanding of listening and just, all right, this is how we're going to do it this way. And maybe it'd be easier if we could just do it this way. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's yeah. a little more adaptable yeah. than I think any, less, less structure. And I, yeah. that's, that can make a really great film. Yeah. It really I think, can. Out of all the directors, I would like to have a sit and sit at the bar with John Huston. I would too. Right? He, he, you know, he's made some brilliant films where it's like, oh my God, well, Treasure Sierra Madre, Maltese Falcon. Because um, he did live a colorful life. Yes, he did. Before you started directing movies. And then he made certain films where you would scratch your head and go, he made that? <laughs> for, uh, for instance, Victory with Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone is a John Huston film. Oh, really? Um, yes. Gosh. The, the soccer. The prisoner of war soccer team that uh, played the Nazis yeah. uh, came out in 1980. One of John Huston's last, mm -hmm. but yeah. Um, there's a made TV movie. Um, I can't remember the title of it, but uh, Roger Moore plays Sherlock Holmes and John Huston plays Moriarty. Yes. I can't remember the title of that. You can find it on YouTube if you look for it, really. Okay, so, yeah, because Huston was one of those characters. I mean, he directed, he wrote, he acted. And, I mean, he was a triple threat all around. Yeah, his uh, um, his daughter, Angelica. Angelica Huston. Always yes. said he was a more, you know, people involved with a certain medium like movies, and you get them away, all they want to talk about is movies. And yes. In fact, that's the opposite of John Huston. He was very knowledgeable about all aspects. He would, wow. he liked to talk about anything. <laughs> Which right. is great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my, I'm going to get to my kind of my theme of this movie, and I wrote my essay. is not so much greed, but okay. I wrote my my point of view was maturity. Okay. I think Fred C. Dobbs' character is a little more juvenile aspect of life. Yeah. And the other ones have a very more mature aspect. And the movie actually is a more mature movie than we ever really associate, right? And, well, I, it's and I think it's pretty, probably was I was hesitant to watch as a kid because it's a mature film it is it's strictly for adults and it is and it's um it's how would you react in a stressful situation no kid is going to be right. you know having to look for gold or you know um trying to survive in in a world especially like during the depression where this is set in the 20s and um that's, that's i concentrate true. more as like a, a the difference between juvenile and maturity right. here you know i'm gonna order this Steak and then yep. I throw it back in their face or yeah, which is very juvenile. You get money and instead of thinking something, you go impulsive and get yourself dressed up and now you look for girls and um, you're yep. not thinking or oh, you're all to get me. It's very it's you, very it's it's very juvenile. You're absolutely right. right. Yeah. yeah, and the two other guys have a very mature aspect of it. Even, I I'm gonna do this for my life and even Tim Roth's character who is younger than Dobbs. Yeah, and Dobbs looks upon him as kind of a kid. Yeah. And Dobbs is more, you know, hey, I know all the angles. I know what the world's like. Um, which uh, Roth is is more mature to actually handle it, you know. Yeah. And, um, of course, the old man, well, you know. He's seen it all. <laughs> He's seen it all. You we don't even, I mean, you could, beat him on that. you could have been somebody like Dobbs before and then right. realized the consequences before. Then, like, look, you know. Yeah. So and that's my kind of a different 
I would take yeah. everybody always says all oh, about greed and just mining and that's going to ruin you. But in essence, he's built up before that. We see a little bit of immaturity of Dobbs. Yeah, of more where the character, the character of the of the um, right. individuals are involved. I yes, he can't, I agree. He can't find a job. He's just going to ask people for money because he can't figure out how to get his own job. Yeah. And even when he does, he doesn't check to see, hey, this is <laughs> he has, right for me to do. Or he, has, something. he has to be shamed into it by yeah. a complete stranger. And it's always anxiety. Like always kids in the playground, you're taking my stuff and I know. Yeah. yeah. So there's almost like he hasn't fully mentally developed yet. Right. Yeah. And if... It, you haven't made it by his age, I swear to you, I'm not going to. <laughs> it's just not in the cards, baby. <laughs> okay, so yeah, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, or Austin, also known as Dust in the Wind. <laughs> Is it really? Well, he, no. <laughs> I was referencing to the gold at the end of the film. Right, yes. <laughs> Although, I mean, we don't have any stinking badges. That's always known as the trademark, uh, you know, saying. But there are a lot of great sayings in this movie. I mean, one that popped up when... Bogart gets the lottery. That's the sugar papa likes. Yeah. I was like, why, that's did that, why did that one survive? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of the podcast. I want to thank Steve for mentioning us. It was a great... Uh, thank you, Steve. For pointing it out. Yeah, oh, we yeah. appreciate it. Yep. I... Um, I would put. I don't know if it's still my top ten. I think it's Maltese Falcon. I will have to put that. I, it is in my top ten. And treasures too. Uh, yeah. Treasure too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, treasures here, Madre. I put in my top ten. All right. Well, thanks for listening and enjoy. And next time we'll we'll be talking about uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Really looking forward. All right. Love.